even with the death of my parents and the childhood trauma that I have endured, I have never, ever felt such pain. And yet, at the same time, I have never felt so lifted up by God's grace. His grace is sufficient. And you know what? Sooner or later, troubles come to all of us. You just cannot avoid them in this life. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. The scripture says, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are cast down, but we are not destroyed. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou wilt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. And this one, oh, I've clung to this one. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In Isaiah 43, 2, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. I feel like Daniel's friends, I feel like I've been in the fiery furnace. But you know who's been there every step of the way? You know. You know, don't you? And if you don't know, I hope you do know that the Son of God is there with you through whatever you're going through. He is there with you, and he is the only one that can sustain you. And this morning when I woke up, the knot was still there, but I knew I could go on. That in, in my, his strength is made perfect in my weakness. And you know what? It's not all about me. It's all about him. And it's all about you, because if through my trials I can help you and be more compassionate, more understanding, because we all go through different things, but boy, they hurt, don't they? And that's what we're all about. We're about helping one another. You can help me by praying, but please, please pray for our family. And as this happened... As the Lord always does, guess what my lesson was supposed to be on, or is on, the worry rule. So let's turn, please, to Matthew chapter 6. The worry rule, we'll be looking at um, lesson number 46, verses 25 through 34 of Matthew 6. And I'll go ahead by starting out, um, well, with prayer. I haven't had prayer yet, have I? Let's ask God's blessing on our time together. Father God, thank you that you send us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to come alongside of us, that he is the comforter and that he can give us his comfort even in the midst of the fiery trials of life. Lord, I thank you for every woman here. I know that so many of us are going through trials of all different kinds, and if we aren't going through them, we've been through them or they're ahead of us because we live in a sin-cursed world. And the only, the only thing to hold us up is the word of God, the living word of God and the written word of God, to put our trust and our faith in you. 
You are our refuge. You are our hiding place. You are our strong, our strong, our high tower, and you are just everything that can can withhold us and keep us going. Take that next step forward. We thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us, and that we can have you present with us at all times. You said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Thank you for that. Thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you for the blessed hope of the fact that you could come at any day. And I say, more than ever before, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world is getting so very wicked. Now, I just pray that you would go before us. Help me, Lord, to be a blessing to these women, for all of us to have receptive hearts, to hear what your Spirit says to us through the Word of God. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, two weeks ago, or whenever it was, in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24, we looked at the treasure rule. And in that rule, the Lord warned the listeners of his sermon about the problem of materialism. We learned that we are not to have a worldly attitude about the non-necessities of life, which, you know, would be treasures that are stored up here on earth, would obviously not be necessities or they wouldn't be stored up. Um, We are not to be focused, in other words, on laying up earthly temporal treasures for our own selfish purposes. Rather, we are to set our affection on building up heavenly, eternal treasures. Now, in the next rule for the redeemed, which is the section of the sermon, section 6 that we are looking at, in this next rule, found in verses 25 to 34, Jesus turned to the sin, the, the twin sin disease of worry. So in the two rules, the, the uh, treasure rule and the worry rule, he has been talking about the danger of worldliness, and now we're going to be looking at the danger of worry or the temptation to worry. We're going to hear the Savior talk about not having a worldly attitude concerning the necessities of life. The treasures were the non-necessities. Now he's going to focus on the necessities such as food, drink, clothing, shelter, and even the length of our lives, our lifespan. So on the one hand, the danger for those who are rich is the temptation to trust in their riches, the temptation to trust in mammon, while on the other hand, the danger for those who are poor is the temptation to doubt in God's providence and in God's provision and in God's protection. So there is an even balance in the two temptations. Far too often, the rich, and by the way, in the United States of America, every one of us is rich, the rich place their trust in the false security of their prosperity, whereas the poor, far too often, worry with a false insecurity because of their poverty. However, just as we discussed how the poor can have as much of a problem in the area of having covetousness toward riches, isn't that true? They can have just as much of a problem with mammon as the rich because they're covetous toward what they don't have, and they can have a wrong focus on the things of this earth. The same is true with the rich in the area of worry. The poor may worry about getting the basic things of life, but the rich worry over uh, keeping and maintaining and adding to the basic things of life. 
such as food, clothing, drink, shelter, their lifespan. Worry, we could say, is the universal disease of our age. Everybody, everybody does it. <laughs> it's, not, it's no respecter of persons. It is not restricted to poor or rich, whether we are wealthy or not. The temptation of man is to be too concerned with earthly matters and earthly problems and earthly possessions in either what he does have or in what he does not have. In fact, unfortunately, worry is not confined or restricted to just unbelievers, is it? Far too often, believers also worry, yet we have no just cause for worrying. Unbelievers have every cause and every need in the world to worry, actually, because they should be worrying, because their eternal destination, their eternal destiny is hell. So they really have every reason to worry. But Christians don't. In fact, for Christians, worry is a sin. Now, how many times do you think I've reminded myself of this little truth the past week? And that's what we're going to be discussing in this lesson. Since the topic of this second rule for the redeemed is that of worry or anxiety, we need to consider the meaning of the Greek word, which you see in the King James is uh, the little phrase, take no thought for, or uh, why, uh, why take ye thought for. The, the Greek word is merimanano. And it's a um, word which primarily means anxious care or to be troubled with cares. So that which the Lord is speaking of in the context is nervous uneasiness and anxious worry about the future. When he gives the command, take no thought for, or asks the question, why take ye thought for, in fact, he, he uses that phrase six times in our passage for today. He's uh, telling us, why do you think he repeats it six times? It's, yeah, man, it's man's number, and man is pretty slow to learn when it comes especially to an issue like this. So he's repeating it so that we'll sit up and, and pay attention, for one fact, you know, that, that he repeated it, and um, also because we're slow to learn. So six times, he tells us in verse 25, verse 27, verse 28, verse 31, verse 34, twice, he uses this little phrase basically saying, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Why are you worrying? Why are you worrying? Why are you worrying? Let's read it. I haven't read it yet, have I? Matthew 6, starting at verse 25. Jesus said, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought. Or don't worry for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment or clothing? Verse 26, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which, is, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe ye, you, O ye of little faith? 
Therefore, don't worry. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, or the unbelievers is what he's speaking of there. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But, everybody say this together, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Another verse which has really helped me lately. All people to varying degrees are plagued by the issue of worry. So once again, we are going to find out that the Bible is a very, very practical book. Is it not? It's not just pie-in-the-sky theology. It is practical. In fact, there is not a more practical where the rubber meets the road book in, in existence. And it's never out of date. In, it fits every culture of every generation and every civilization that has ever lived. And no other book can make that claim. Now, the first word of this section on worry in verse 5 is what? What's the very first word? Therefore. And the scriptural rule for all therefores is to ask, what is that therefore there for? It's a connection. It's a contextual connection, a word that purposely links us to whatever preceded this passage. So, what preceded this passage? When the Lord was talking about that no man can serve two masters, the Lord wanted his listeners to understand the preceding verses on the treasure rule in light of what he was now going to say about worrying. He had just stated that no one can serve very two, two very opposing masters, God and mammon. And we talked about how they're absolutely opposite from one another. And so nobody can serve, be a bondservant to both of them. The believer's only God is to be God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. If we serve mammon, we are putting another God before Jehovah God. Now, the connection with verse 25 is, therefore, do not worry. Don't be anxious over mammon or the things of this life. Don't be anxious over anything in this world. To worry is to focus our thoughts on something or on some circumstance, some problem, some trial, some situation, or some person other than who? other than God. And therefore, worry becomes, because we're focused on that other thing or person, worry therefore becomes a form of idolatry. And is idolatry sin? Yes, idolatry is sin. When we worry, we become a slave to whatever it is that we are are worried about. Now, before I was a Christian, I had a problem with worry, a big-time problem with worry. I was very, and I really had a right to be worried. I was worried about death and what happens to my soul after I die. So that actually, I'm glad that I was worried, but I was obsessed worried. I mean, I, I couldn't even sleep. I had phobias. I, um, what do you call it? Anxiety attacks and all sorts of things. But I, I definitely was full of worry. 
To the degree that we are servants of another, we are not servants of God. Because the Christian's master is the sovereign, providential God of the the universe, worry is sinful. It's sinful because it demonstrates a distrust in his providence and in his promises. Didn't he promise us, for example, that he would supply all our need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus? Didn't he promise us and tell us that we could cast all our cares upon him because he careth for us? Worry in the believer is always due to a lack of faith. That's why he basically finishes up this, uh, well, or summarizes this whole section on worry in verse 30 where he says, O ye of little faith. The one who worries is demonstrating little faith. That's, not, that's different from saving faith. This is just weak saving faith. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin, it says in Romans 14.23. Now, although we have talked about the um, meaning of the Greek word used in this passage, It's interesting to find that the word worry really originated with the Germans. I was so glad to hear that being Greek, you know. Oh, the Greeks aren't responsible for the word worry. It came from the Germans. How many of you are German? All right. You started this word. (laughs) Well, I guess actually Adam and Eve must have. But the word in German means to choke or to strangle. And isn't that so appropriate? (laughs) That's exactly what worry does. It chokes or strangles us. Worry is really an emotional and a mental strangulation. Worry and anxiety have caused more mental, emotional uh, problems. I'm sure that our mental institutions are full of people who have arrived there because of anxiety and stress and and over-worry. Uh, they said, worry and anxiety have caused more problems among people than any other single cause. It's the total opposite of contentment and peace. What are we told to be as Christians? Content. We are told to be content. We are to have a consistent state of mind that is one of peace. You know, our true contentment in this life, I've got news for you, can only be found in God, in the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's it. If you're looking for contentment anywhere else, you will not find it. When we are worried, our efforts for God and for his kingdom and for his righteousness get choked out. And this is what the Lord Jesus described for us in the parable of the the sower and the seed over in Matthew chapter 13, when he talked about the seed, you know, God's word, which was planted by the sower, Jesus Christ, and that seed, some of the seed, there were four types of seed, but some fell upon, um, yeah, I'm sorry, same seed. Seed is the word of God. It's the gospel message. But it fell upon four different types of soil. And some of it fell um, among thorns. And that represents those people See, am I behind here in my pictures? The seed that fell among the thorns represents those people who, when they have heard the gospel, they go forth for a while. They look like they're genuine and really saved, but they are very soon choked out. Again, choked out by what? By the cares 
and the riches and the pleasures, and we could add, and the worries of this life. How many people do we know like that? You know, they look like they've truly been born again, but as soon as, as, soon as life happens, they, they, they're, they're gone. They can't handle it. They say, I can't, I can't do both. I can't serve God and mammon, and I've got to worry about mammon, and I've got to worry about all the circumstances in my life. I can't handle it, so they disappear. Well, it shows us that the seed didn't take root. It wasn't real. Because if it's real, you're going to keep going no matter what. No matter what. How many people do we know like that? The churches are absolutely full of them. You see them for a little while, and then you never see them again. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who probably wrote the best book ever written on the Sermon on the Mount, said this to remind us of the subtlety of Satan and the sin of worry. He said, it doesn't matter very much to Satan what form sin takes as long as he succeeds in his ultimate objective. It is immaterial to him whether you are laying up treasures on earth or worrying about earthly things. All he is concerned about is that your mind should be on them and not on God. What's your worry? What's your problem? You know, if your focus is on that problem and that situation rather than on God, Satan is happy. He's content. He will assail and attack you on every, on every, from every direction. You may think, he says, that you have won this great battle against Satan because you conquered him when he came in at the front door and talked to you about laying up treasures on earth. But before you are aware of it, you will find that he has come in through the back door and is causing you to have anxious, worried concern about these things. He is still making you look at earthly treasures or earthly situations, and so he, Satan, is perfectly content. End of quote. True. Very true. So Jesus reminds us in verse 25 that life is more than meat. It's more than our bodies. You sure wouldn't know that if you went to any mall, would you? I mean, this world thinks it's all about bellies and bodies. Bellies and bodies and stuff. Bodily wants are not to consume and sidetrack our minds and our lives. Certainly the one who gave us both physical and, if you're a Christian, spiritual life. Certainly the one who has given us our lives and our spiritual life is able to sustain that life, right? We should not live to eat. Man shall not live on bread alone. We should not live in order to be comfortable. We should not live in order to be warm or to enjoy ourselves or to, to look great um, or to, to be popular or to build bigger and better barns. The spiritual life should always, always, always have priority over the physical life, just as living for the eternal treasure should always have priority over the temporal treasure. What we are and what we will be for all eternity is far more important than anything in this life. I keep thinking 50 years from now, some of you, you might have to say 70 years from now, the only thing that will matter is your Christ-likeness and how, you know, look at Job. What was that all about? Job was a righteous man. You know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you can't say, oh, it just happens to the unrighteous. No. Trials and troubles and tribulations happen 
no respect of persons to everybody. But what God is looking for is those who can go through the trial with him and come out refined as gold on the other end. And in eternity, that's what's going to count, isn't it? These troubles and trials will be over. We'll be with our loved ones in the Lord. Everything, we won't think back on all these problems. You know what I want to hear? Don't you want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant? All those trials and troubles I put into your life, you survived them with me. You were a testimony for me. You let your light so shine before men that they glorified me through that trial. Well, it's not for us to ask why. You know, I thought about that. Why? Why, why, why? You know what? I didn't have, ever ask that question. I, 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 always, I always thought, well, why not? Why not me? Why not? It's not about me. Why not? Why not my daughter? Why not our family? Why not your family? I mean, we'll understand in heaven. And we won't even need an explanation when we get there. Now, we might ask, why can a Christian's contentment be found in God? Well, why, why do we need to worry when God is our master and our Lord? And to answer those questions, let's do what Jesus always did. What did he always do? He answered questions with questions. So let's ask ourselves three simple questions. Doesn't God own everything? Doesn't God control everything? And doesn't God provide everything? The answer to the first question, doesn't God own everything, is of course. You know, if you believe the Bible, then of course he owns everything. Everything is his by right of creation, by right of origination. He created everything, and therefore everything that exists belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Since life came directly from God, why should we fret over anything that is less? Do you think that God would go halfway with anything? Does he ever go halfway? No. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in us, in you, will complete it. He, he always completes everything. He doesn't just leave it halfway. If he gave us life, he will maintain that life as long as he wills. He is the God who has given us the great gift of life. And for the Christian... He has given us the great gift of eternal life. So do you really think that we need to be anxious about the lesser things? We don't. You see, self-indulgence is what our culture today is all about. And that is why there is so much anxiety and stress and tension. People are building their whole lives on a false reductionist view of humanity. Thanks to evolution, they think that uh, they have the belief that they are just bodies. You know, they've evolved from an amoeba and a mud puddle and through the apes and all that. So they are just bodies that need to be fed, that need to be watered, (laughs) clothed, sheltered, pampered, satisfied, and maintained for as long as possible. And if we see life as nothing more than this reductionist view sees it, then we are bound to have anxiety. Any view that sees this world as the highest level that there is really has, as I said before, every right to be full of anxiety. 
But as Christians, we are to understand that this world is just temporary. We're just, our citizenship isn't here. We're just pilgrims so on a sojourn. We're just passing through. If we say that our values as Christians are above the world's values and that we understand that we are much more than just bodies, we have, what, an eternal soul, then uh, why, sh- why, why do we worry about this world? And why do we worry about our bodies so much? And the things, the temporal things of this world, and even the temporal, the temporary situations of this world. Eternity is what it's all about, isn't it? Eternity is what it is all about. The answer to the second question, doesn't God control everything, is also a resounding yes. Uh, The one who just by the power of his spoken word created everything in existence from absolutely nothing. Can you imagine any greater power? Ex nihilo. He created everything that exists from absolutely nothing except his spoken word. Do you think that one has the power to keep and to control everything that he has created? Uh, Of course he does. And this, again, is evidenced by many, many verses in the scripture, such as Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 to 21, where it says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. Does he make mistakes? No. Man does, but he doesn't. And is Genesis 50, 20 still in the Bible? Absolutely. What man meant for evil, God is a professional at turning to good. Is Romans 8.28 still in the Bible? Still in my Bible. He works all things together for good to them that love him who are called according to his purpose. It says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changeth the times and the seasons. I'm not sure about daylight savings time, which I haven't changed my watch yet. Um, And he's the one who uh, gives knowledge to them that know understanding. He's the one who removes kings and sets up kings. It says, God that made the world and all things therein, he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Third question is, doesn't God provide everything? And that is also to be answered, of course, in the positive. Yes, he does indeed provide everything. It says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. It says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 19. It says in Romans 8, 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Does all things include peace peace does all things include contentment does all things include a sound mind God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind another verse I have recited to myself According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Jehovah Jireh is the Lord who provides. And if he is your Lord and God, then why do we worry? Why do we need to worry? 
we don't need to worry. Now, although Christians, let me go here for a minute. Although Christians have no business worrying, there is one sense in which we are to have justified uh, concern. Whereas worry demonstrates doubt, concern demonstrates love. Jesus was not trying to foster in us some kind of a detached, well, who cares attitude. You know, I'm not going to worry about anything. I'll just float through life kind of as a zombie. Who cares? He's in control. He's going to work it out anyway. There is a good type of worry, quote, unquote, which is is really concerned that all Christians are to have, all healthy Christians are to have. We are, for example, to be concerned, not worried, but concerned about the spiritual well-being of other people. Um, The Apostle Paul, we know, was content in all circumstances, wasn't he? He was content for himself. He was content, but he was extremely concerned to the point of great distress over the lost condition of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Jews. He also said that he had a daily concern for all the churches. We... As Christians are to have a real concern for the church universal, the body of Christ. We are to have a real concern for our local church. We are to be very concerned for the lost. We are to have genuine concern for the needy, the the poor, the orphans, the, uh, the widows, the handicapped. We're to have concern for evangelism. We're to have concern for discipleship. We're to be concerned about the condition of our own hearts and the unceasing temptation to sin. We should be concerned, not worry, but we should be concerned about the condition of our society. These forms of concern, however, are not self-centered, are they? They're not focused on me and my problems. They're focused on others. They're far from being self-centered. Rather, they are born out of a love for the righteousness of God and Christ the Savior. All this week I've been asking myself, am I worried? Am I worried? Is that, is that what my problem here is? Is it sin? Because I'm worried about the future. And then I, I, I finally think I, I figured out my own heart, that it wasn't so much worry as pain. Pain. The pain. And then I got to thinking about how how the pain was just so unbelievable. Frank and I couldn't even look at one another without just bursting into tears. And I thought, the pain of sin and Jesus on the cross. You know how your stomach is just feels like somebody's taking a towel and just taking your stomach and twisted it and twisted it. And you just hurt from head to toe. It isn't worry. It was pain, pain, pain. And I thought how he died on the cross and took All that pain. Oh, my goodness. I thought, how? How did he ever bear all that pain? And all that he he became sin for us. Do you know how ugly sin is? I just can't imagine how he endured the pain of the cross. The physical pain was nothing compared to the spiritual pain. And then being separated from his father. Oh, it just brought, brought the cross to my heart more than ever before.
and what he endured for us. What Jesus was counseling us against is worry that is self-centered and has at its root a lack of trust in God. We are not to worry about matters as though God is not in control or as though God is not powerful enough to handle them, but we are to be concerned enough to do our part. Just because he told us not to be anxious doesn't mean that we should just sit back and do nothing, you know, rationally, rationalizing to ourselves that God will handle the situation. He will cause, you know, he will have come to pass that which he wills anyway. So why, why get concerned or even get involved? That's not what he's telling us here. He is the sovereign of the universe, and he will accomplish his will, but that does not mean he doesn't want to use you and I in accomplishing that will. So it's self-centered worry and anxiety that Jesus condemns. And it is these very self-focused worries that eat away at a person and make him sick physically and mentally and spiritually and socially. They create in the believer a doubtful mind. You know, in Luke's parallel passage to this passage that we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount, he says it like this. In, this is Luke 12, 29. And seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. Worrying carries with it the sin of doubt, doesn't it? Doubt occurs when our eyes are removed from God's providence and they're fixed instead on the cares and the, and the storms and the trials and the valleys of this world. Worry carries with it the fact of doubt. It's something that divides or distracts us. Isn't that what happened to Peter? When he was walking on the water, he did fine as long as his focus was on Christ. But as soon as he took his focus off Christ and focused on the storm beneath him, he began to sink. So that's what worry does. It distracts us. It divides our attention. It, just as we discussed in our previous lesson, it is a lack of single-sightedness. Worry for the Christian is a form of double vision, looking in two directions at the same time. We look to God, yes, but we don't quite inwardly feel that he's going to handle our cares and our needs and our health issues and our, and our loved ones in quite the right way. So what do we have to do? We have to help him out by worrying. That is absolutely ludicrous when you think about it. It is. It's just ridiculous. You know, when the Lord one day was visiting with his good friends uh, in, in Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, you recall that Martha was very busy with all the food preparation in the kitchen. And she got herself, have any of you ever been there? <laughs> she got herself all worked up and agitated with her sister for not helping her out. I used to have this problem big time. And by the time my company came for dinner, I was in such a state of affairs that I couldn't even enjoy having fellowship with them because the house had to be perfect, the food had to be perfect, you know. It was ridiculous. Jesus, in kind rebuke, said to her, remember, Martha, Martha, thou art careful, which is exactly the same word we're looking at in this text. Thou art anxious or worried and troubled, which is the word distracted, about many things. Poor Martha. Like so many of us, she was anxious, she was worried, she was troubled because she had a distraction with the concerns of this life to the point that it 
distracted her from being able to spend time with the Lord. That's a danger, isn't it? You're so distracted by taking care of your homes and your children and all your things and your stuff and feeding people and all this that you don't. You get, so, you get distracted from spending time with the Lord. And uh, who did he commend? Uh, on the other hand, her sister Mary, his, her sister Mary had a single vision. She focused. Now, you know, the dishes are going to be in the sink later on, aren't they? They're still going to be waiting for you. Unless you have a really wonderful husband who will go in there and wash them for you. <laughs> but they'll be waiting, I guarantee you. <laughs> Mary had her focus on Jesus. And therefore, she uh, chose that good part that could not be taken from her. Where was she? While Jesus was there, she was at his feet learning from him. Later on, I'm sure she had every intention of going and helping her sister. So the danger the Lord is warning us all about is that of being distracted and worried about earthly things to the point that they take us away from our main objective in life, which is to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. The best preventative for worry and for a doubtful mind, double vision, is to do what the word of God tells us to do. Uh, When there are potential situations in our lives... For anxiety, and we all have them, because you could think about what tomorrow might bring, and that could get you anxious. I mean, terrorists might drop drop a bomb on us before we even finish here today, right? If you want to start thinking about what could happen, (laughs) it's unlimited. (laughs) But to the greatest preventative for worry is to do what God's word says. It says, "Be careful," which again is the same word. Take no thought for, or don't be anxious for anything be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication and here's the great part with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto god and then what the peace of god that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Does the Bible say in everything give thanks? You know what else it says? For everything give thanks. How can I be thankful for this situation in my life, Lord? Because I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My wisdom is far greater than yours. I see from a much more eternal perspective than you do is what he answers don't you want a peace that passes all understanding don't you want it I do he's given it to me this week it's the only thing that's helped get us through is that peace that the world doesn't know the world would turn to to uh, pills pills the world would turn to to a bottle, the world would turn to anger and murder. Don't think I haven't thought about it. Remember, the promise of God is not that He will give us peace instead of problems, but He will give us peace in spite of problems. The peace God gives in the midst of problems helps us not to worry while we are growing in and through that problem. 
Besides the fact that worry demonstrates a distrust of the master's providence, it also demonstrates doubt of the father's protection. Now, in the rest of this section, I'm going to have to really travel fast. Um, as we look at the worry rule, we're going to discuss six reasons why the Christian has no business worrying. It's because it's unnecessary, verse 26. It's because it's unproductive, verse 27. It's unfaithful, verses 28 to 30. It's unchristian, verse 31, 32. It's unrighteous, verse 33. And it is, you know what? Unhealthy, verse 34. Jesus gave three examples in verses 26 to 30 of his care with uh, if using the animate and inanimate world about us. And these illustrations reinforced what he'd already said. The first had to do with food and birds. The second had to do with adding to our height, our stature, or more likely adding to our lifespan. We'll talk about that. And the third had to do with flowers and clothing. Now, in the first illustration, the Lord commanded us to be a bird watcher. How many of you are bird watchers? Well, that's good because you're obeying God. He told all of us to be bird watchers. My mother-in-law was a fanatic bird watcher. She knew every bird and every, every, she taught second grade for 40 years and everybody I've ever met, met who was in her classroom knows their birds. <laughs> and my, my husband inherited that. That's why I say he's a foul person. <laughs> but Jesus did command us to be bird watchers. He said, this is a command, behold the fowls of the air. For they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? When we take a good look at the birds, we see the obvious lesson that the Lord Jesus is trying to teach us here. And it is so funny. I have to share this with you. This is uh, when I when I was studying this lesson and actually typing it up in my computer. What was that? A week ago or so? I guess it's more than a week ago. Two weeks ago. Um, I, my, my office is on the second floor of our house, and um, there's a, a deck outside of... Our, my office is actually in the bedroom, but then there's a little deck. And um, my two Jack Russells like to go in and out. It was a beautiful day, and I was sitting there at my desk, and they wanted to go out on the deck. And so I opened the door so the little dogs could go out on the deck, and when I did that, a bird flew into the bedroom. And it just, I, I, don't, I don't like birds flying around my head. It scares me. <laughs> I don't know why, but it does. But I thought that was, I just, it was amazing to me. Here I was studying, behold the birds of the air. God really wanted to give me an illustration of that because he put one right in there in my bedroom. <laughs> oh, that was, I won't go into, I don't have time to tell you how I got him out of there, but <clears throat> Frank was gone, of course. <laughs> When we take a good look at the birds, we learn a lot from them. By and large, you know, birds are a happy and a healthy lot. None of them suffer from hypertension. None of them are suffering from stress-related diseases. And to be sure, none of them are worrying. God provides for them even though they don't sow a field in order to reap the harvest. God, through his creation, provides them with the necessities to live, doesn't he? 
So if God provides food for the birds, which he did not create in his own image, and which do not have eternal souls, and which he did not send his son, the Lord Jesus, to die for, will he not certainly provide for those who are made in his image and who have placed our trust in him? Of course. If the fowl of the air can be fed without doing any sowing or reaping or gathering, will God's own spiritual children not have food when they do sow and when they do reap and when they do gather into barns? Does he not protect the welfare of birds by providing them with an abundant food source? Does he not protect their welfare by providing them with the instinct to be able to find those food sources? and hide from their predators and build their cozy little nests and feed and raise their young. So why would he do less for his own children? He says, are we not much more valuable than they? And by the way, that statement of the Lord expresses, exposes, I should say, exposes the false creed of those tree huggers and whale lovers. And I don't have anything against whales and trees those fanatical environmentalists who are obsessed more with animal rights than they are with human rights. Jesus says, are we not much more valuable than they? Of course. Now, to be, be sure to understand that by this example, Jesus is not calling us to laziness or um, in, indolence. He's not saying um, that we don't have to work because God will provide for us regardless. Very Few creatures, except for perhaps ants and bees, work harder than the birds. In fact, they spend the greater part of each day getting their food. God has provided them with the sources for their food, but they have to labor to get them, right? Absolutely. Just like manna. He provided manna for the people, but they had to go out every day and pick it up. He's provided us with spiritual nourishment, but every day. We have to labor to feed it to ourselves. So he's not, he's, not, um, he's not calling us to laziness in saying this. The biblical principle is that we must work, but we must not worry. The birds never worry about their next meal. You think they wake up in the morning and say, I wonder where I'm going to find a nice, big, fat, juicy worm today. <laughs> and they don't overeat. <laughs> they don't hoard their food. They don't lay up treasures here on earth, except a very few species who store up instinctively for the, the winter. And, uh, and they don't do it. They don't store up because they're worried about the future. And they're very content with what God has given to them. They're very content with nuts, fruits, berries, and worms. Are you content with nuts? <laughs> no, not me. I have to have my chocolate. Secondly, doesn't worry prove unproductive? Not only is worry unnecessary, but it's also very unproductive. He continued to teach about the subject of worrying by asking a second question. He said in verse 27, Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? Now, I don't want to get into all this. I think it's in your notes. But the Greek word for stature can also be translated lifespan which really makes better sense in the context there. Even for those who disagree and say that it really means stature, it doesn't really matter if it means stature or lifespan because the argument doesn't change. Worry doesn't help a person to grow. How many of you would like to have been taller? 
would worrying about it have changed anything? No. How many of you would have liked to have been shorter? How, how many of you would have liked to have had a smaller nose? <laughs> or straight legs? You know, did, did worrying about it ever change anything? No, that's his argument here. Um, and worry doesn't help a person to grow any more than it helps him to live longer. In fact, if you worry, you probably will live shorter, although God has numbered our days. Worry is just plain unproductive. It's, it is weak because it doesn't have the ability to do anything positive. It doesn't have the ability to do anything good. It certainly does not help to solve any problems. It only creates more problems. All right, let me move on. Doesn't worry also prove unfaithful? In verses 28 to 30, this is what the, we could ask the question, doesn't worry prove unfaithful? The point of the Lord's third argumentative illustration is um, he uses the wildflowers. And um, the analogy here is it, the lilies of the field. The analogy is very simple and it's very logical. It's the same, the same one who cares enough and is mighty enough to dress the lilies of the field which speaks really of wildflowers, not, not lilies, you know, that we think of, but wildflower lilies that decorate the green grass with their exquisite beauty. You know, he, the same one who created them, and they only last for a short time because then they, they're mown, mown down, is that the word? Mowed. <laughs> that didn't sound right. Mowed down and, um, and burned, I think it says in the passage there. The same one who, who, provides them, who provides them their great beauty will surely provide the body of an immortal soul with clothing. I know I didn't say all that very well. Flowers don't toil. They don't spin. They don't work, you know, at creating their own clothing, do they? But God still takes care of them. In fact, if you would put a wildflower of any kind under a microscope and look at it, the, the marvel of God's creation would just, I mean, I don't even have to look under a microscope. I could just look at it and just wonder at, at the beauty of it. It says that even Solomon's robes, which were woven with gold threads and jewels and all kinds of things on jewel-studded robes that he had, even he wasn't dressed as beautifully as a wildflower. So since God takes such care with inanimate flowers that cannot think, or even work, how much more does he care for us, his gifted creation, to whom he continuously gives his very presence. So he says, behold the fowls of the air and consider the lilies. Why? Because they are our teachers from nature to show us God's great care for us. Worry simply demonstrates a misunderstanding or an ignorance of God's word and of God's character. Worry merely demonstrates that we judge our circumstances to be greater than he is. You know, five times in the gospel accounts, Jesus says, O ye of little faith. And every time it has to do with the issue of worry. Worry shows that our own limited perspective on things is mastering us. And the solution to worry, as I said before, is in God's word. Because it is there that we come to know God's character. And it is in God's word that we come to know his promises. He says, be still and know that I am God. He says, lean not on your own understanding. 
doesn't he? In all your ways, acknowledge him. He says, I will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed fixed on me. He says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He says, be like David, who was able, no matter where he was, to lay down in peace and sleep because he knew that in the Lord he dwelt in safety. So look at the scriptures because they repeatedly tell us how unbiblical our worries are. It's the Christian who is not renewed and it is the Christian who is not refreshed daily in God's word who leaves himself or herself open for those fiery darts of doubt and worry to strike home. He is our hiding place. He is our refuge. He is our shield. He is our high tower. Doesn't worry prove unchristian. In verse 31, he says, and Jesus says in effect that we don't need to be anxious because we are the king's children. If we are anxious about things of this world, you know what we're doing? We're acting just like the Gentiles. And here he means the unbelievers. We're acting just like the secular world. One of the main characteristics of those who do not know God is that they live for the present. They overestimate this world and the concerns and the things of this world because this world is all that they know they have. So they are bound by the horizons of this earth. They are bound by what they can see with their eyes and feel with their hands, smell with their nose, taste with their mouths. Because they have no hope in a provider God or a protector God, it's only natural for them to worry about such things as their lifespan or their temporary situation, their circumstances, or their, where their next meal will come from, or what they'll drink, or how they'll keep themselves content and, and happy and, and full of pleasure and comfort creatures and that sort of thing. That's only natural for them. They, and as I mentioned, they have every reason to worry. But, but their worry should be really not about the things of this world. Their worry should be focused on where they're going after this world. Worry lowers the child of God to the level of the unbeliever. To worry is unchristian because it demonstrates belief in a God who does not know what his children need, so they need to work up a spiritual sweat of anxiety in order to arouse him, just like the prophets of Baal tried to work up a spiritual sweat to arouse their God. Um, and, and to make him aware of what their needs are. That's what we do if we worry. We're trying to arouse God with our worry and say, you know, don't you know I'm worried? We got, you've got to get aroused and, and involved in this problem. That's totally unscriptural. It's totally foolish. It's totally an unchristian, unbiblical concept of God. That which is to distinguish the believer's thinking from that of the, of the unbeliever, is that we know our Heavenly Father knows what we have need of before we even ask, before we even ask. We know he's omniscient. We know he's all-knowing. We know he knows 
the end from the beginning. We know he's holy. He's hallowed, right? We know he's all-powerful, he's all-wise, he's all-good. So to worry and to be anxious for our own self-interests or needs or circumstances is really a reflection of our own ignorance of who God is. And if not ignorance, then our worry is based on our refusal to trust in the God who is revealed to us in the Scripture. To say that we believe the Bible and yet to worry, is to be double-minded. Doesn't worry prove unrighteous? Back in verse 24, the Lord Jesus had set forth one of two alternatives, remember? He said, you can either serve God or you can serve mammon, but we can't serve both. Now, in the same way, verse 33, we can either be worried about the trivialities of this life, and I know some of them don't seem like trivialities, but from eternity's perspective, that's what they all are. Or we can serve God's kingdom. But again, we cannot do both. The root cause of anxiety and a troubled spirit of worry is seeking of the things of this world and of this life, whereas the root cause of an inner contentment and uh, peace in spite of difficult circumstances is in seeking the things of God and his kingdom and his character and his righteousness, and his will. Worrying takes our minds off of doing those things and of performing the responsibilities that God has given to us. If we are worried about something, it's very difficult to concentrate on something else, isn't it? Oh, boy, is it ever. It's so hard to focus. Worry is a distraction from seeking first the things of God. So to conquer worry, we need to be kingdom seekers. We need to subject every aspect of our lives to Christ, to be pouring out ourselves as living sacrifices for him, to be living out the beatific virtues before others so that they might be drawn to the light of Christ in us to make others salty, uh, thirsty by the saltiness of our lives. We must be praying as the Lord taught us to pray. We must be yearning for God's will to be accomplished here on earth as it is in heaven. We must be yearning for the return of Christ and for the establishment of his literal kingdom on earth. If we put our minds and our hearts and our time and our energies and our efforts first upon building up the kingdom of God and living out his righteousness before others, then our worries and our anxieties regarding this life and our own personal needs and our own personal problems, somehow they'll begin to fade away. They'll drift into the background. If we concentrate, if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, no matter what we are going through, Be a kingdom seeker. And then all these things, what things will be added unto you? Peace, contentment, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all the material things that you need, not the greeds, but the needs. He's faithful. Last, does not worry, prove unhealthy. Some people just seem to live to worry. 
Have you ever known anyone like that? They just seem to live to worry. If they can't find anything to worry about today, they will conjure up things to worry about for tomorrow. But Jesus said in Matthew 6:34 that kingdom citizens are not to worry about the future. He says, "Take therefore no thought for the morrow." That means tomorrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We live in an evil world and evil and men are waxing worse and worse. There's enough evil in each day. Don't worry about the evil that tomorrow will bring. Ask for God's grace to just get through each day. I've been asking for just each next step. Give me the grace to take the next step. Tomorrow's troubles will not go away just because we worry about them today. But our worry today will actually sap our energy to face tomorrow's trials. George MacDonald said it like this. He said, quote, no man ever sank under the burden of the day. It is when tomorrow's burden is added to the burden of today that the weight is more than a man can bear. Didn't he say... Um, what is that verse um, that he won't give us? How does it start? Yeah. He, he won't give us more than we're able to bear. I know that verse. I, if somebody would tell me the first word, I could say it. Yeah. Anyway, um, but he never said that we'd be able to bear today's problems and tomorrow's problems. You know, he's going to give us a way to escape, but that's just to get us through each day. All right? So don't worry about tomorrow. Worrying doesn't help us to escape evil. It just makes us unhealthy, unfit to cope with it when it does come. God will give us the strength and he will give us the grace that we need to bear each, each day, each hour, each, each minute. But he doesn't, doesn't ever promise us the strength and the grace to bear worrying about them. Adding today's troubles to tomorrow's troubles gives us an unhealthy burden, one we are not required to carry. He he said to tend to the present day's business and leave the cares of tomorrow for tomorrow. We may not even make it to tomorrow. You you know, you might be, I think, I always think about Mary as she was at the, um, the empty tomb and she was crying her eyes out, worrying because somebody had taken the Lord's body and he was right there all along. She didn't need to be worrying about that, did she? Not at all. He was right there with her. We cry and we worry and we fret about so many things that we don't need to. It's a known medical fact that worry is very unhealthy for the body, physically, emotionally, socially, mentally, and as we've discussed, spiritually as well. Worry makes us subject to all kinds of miseries that otherwise we would never have known. The one who worries receives all kinds of blows to his mind and to his body by the anticipation of things that might not ever even happen. So we're not to go through life fearing everything just because everything is possible. Such a person possesses nothing. Even though they may have everything, they possess nothing. 
the only real possession that they have is fear. Anxiety is totally futile. So don't borrow trouble by worrying about tomorrow. Remember that you are much more than a body. You are an eternal soul loved by the God of the universe and bought with an unfathomable price, which was the sinless, precious blood of his only begotten son. So behold the fowls of the air and consider the lilies of the field. If God cares for the lesser, what will he not do for the greater? Don't live in fear and don't live in worry over the future. Live now. Love those that you have with you today. Live for the Lord and he will bless you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And go home and tell those you love that you love them today because you don't know if they'll be there tomorrow, do you? And if they don't know the Lord Jesus, share him with them. God bless you. Let's pray. Father God, you are so absolutely awesome. You are sovereign. You are sufficient. You are all in all. All things are of you and through you and in you. And we praise and worship your holy name. Without you, life would not be worth living. Fix our eyes upon you. Always help us to be single-mindedly focused on eternity and laying up treasures there and not worrying about the things of this world and the problems because you have it all in control. And you do work all things together for good for them that love you. And we do love you, Jesus. And we pray in your blessed holy name. Amen.